Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Aaron Coultate and I'm the news editor at Resident Advisor. Our guest this week is Michael Serafini. Michael is by no means Chicago's most famous DJ, but he's an essential part of the city's dance music scene. He owns Gramophone Records, which is an excellent record shop, and he's a classy DJ too. He also runs a Sunday party at Smart Bar called Queen, which he started back in 2012. Michael stopped by our London office recently, and we started our conversation by chatting about his upbringing on Chicago's South Side. You can find our full archive of exchanges on residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at RA-Exchange. An exchange with Michael Serafini, up next. South side of Chicago, what was that like? <laughs> Segregated. <laughs> yeah, I grew, I'm from Bridgeport, which is uh, actually right by uh, Comiskey Park, where the White Sox, Chicago White Sox, like grew up like literally two blocks away from there. And then, as a child, we moved to a couple of locations, different locations, but always on the south side. The South Side was very segregated, even segregated by nationality, not even just by white and black. Like you had your Italian neighborhood, your Irish, like I I even remember growing up in Bridgeport, the Italians were in Bridgeport and Chinatown was next to us and Canaryville was where the Irish were and the Irish and the Italians would fight all the time and then over the expressway where where the black people lived and you would come into your neighborhood during the day to do shopping but at night you never saw that and it's really what was even more interesting was where my grandparents owned a building that we had lived in two doors down was a black Methodist church. So even though I never interacted with black people as a child, really, every Sunday, they would be, you'd hear gospel music singing from the music coming from the church there. And that was really very intriguing. And they always had lilies of the valley growing in front of there, which were real beautiful. It was, it was, it was interesting memory for me. High school is what really propelled me into music when I went to high school. How did that happen? I wanted to get away from the segregatedness that I was brought up in and having those feelings of kind of knowing that I was gay, but not really knowing, just that you're different and wanting to go somewhere completely different and get away from everyone. And I went to a high school called Brother Rice High School, a Catholic, always went to Catholic schools as a kid. And it was on the far south side, like on the edge of the city where the suburbs start, actually. And it was an interesting place because it was south central of Chicago. So the young black men who lived on the east side 
came there to go to school and you also had your white suburbans and you had some of your city Latinos also, especially it was a Catholic school, excuse me, a Catholic school and it was, uh, had a very good reputation. But because of that, I was exposed to many things in school, like Ron Hardy DJed at a couple of our dance or school dances. Um, Mark Grant went to high school with me. He was actually a year ahead of me. We didn't know each other, but he went there. He DJed at a a couple of the parties for school too. And that's kind of where the exposure to house music Besides the radio, the Hot Mix 5, like house music, being exposed to that, and even alternative and hip-hop, like they used to break dance on lunch break and, and put cardboard on the floor in the gym, and the Latino guys would start break dancing, and it was kind of interesting growing up at that high school, for sure. Did you throw yourself into the, the kind of the house scene at that point, or was it more just a curiosity to you? It was, uh, I don't know, I wouldn't say it was a curiosity. I mean, it was, and yet it was something that I, I did have an affinity for. But that was just as a person. I mean, there was no thoughts in my mind of anything winding up being that resident advisor telling you about this. Was it never in my mind? It was just something that I just, it kind of, I guess, did represent what that music, where it came from and what it was, which was it was a gay at black black and gay culture that it was music that was made by people who were different and it was meant to be different than whatever anybody else was listening to and that uniqueness i gravitated to that so it was the, it was the culture around it as yeah. well as music itself the inclusive nature of it um yeah. in that respect which must have i guess been quite different to the the upbringing you described. Yeah, I guess it, it was very natural. I mean, I think a lot of things in life are that way. Like, there, it, nobody thought about what they were doing. It was just what they were doing. And it was sort of like, you know, it's almost like a, a natural thing that everyone gravitated towards that scene and being in that scene to, you know. It's just It was just very interesting that, you know, these days – there aren't a lot of things that are are the word like closed like there, there's not much in the world that people don't know or there's so much interaction you know back then it was like if you didn't grow up on the south side of chicago or the west side of chicago you wouldn't really know anything about the, that music or those parties you know, there was a little on college radio, but for the most part, most people were oblivious to what was going on and that was happening, you know. You mentioned some of the parties that went on at, at your actual school. Tell me a bit about some of the, the most sort of important early experiences you had in terms of going to, to house parties. I was, I guess, an adventurous young guy, so I started going out late and sneaking out and getting in trouble all the time at home when I was probably 17. I discovered from school in the house parties that we used to have in high school, we used to have parties in the basement and the garage, you know, like actually as a teenager, I thought that's why they were called house parties was because we always had them in houses. You didn't, there were no clubs to go to, at least for us as teenagers. And we used to have parties all the time and, that exposure then 
led me to leaving the South Side and going downtown and going to the North Side of Chicago, which was, you know, like musically, the muse, the house music, is attributed to the to the South Side and the West Side, but the North Side of Chicago is where it really bloomed, and that's where most people had their clubs, had parties and stuff like that. As a teenager, I used to go to this place that was really cool that had parties for teenagers. That's one thing too that's interesting in these days is that with the internet, people don't need to go out to be entertained. And when we were young and teenagers, you know, they used to have teen parties and teen clubs. And we'd go to this place called Prime and Tender that was a steak restaurant that was attached to it was a lounge. And they would have the Hot Mix 5 guys would come and play all the time. So we would go every week into these parties and see, you know, from Ralphie Rosario to Bad Boy Bill, any of those guys would be playing there at some point. And from then propelling me to going like to Medusa's, which was a huge alternative club on the north side of Chicago that used to be a juice bar up till midnight and teens would come, be able to come and play and hang out and dance and saw all Armando, Ron Hardy, all the house guys who were playing played there mixed in with other legends that aren't famous like John Curley or Terry Bristol, Mark Stevens, who is actually more DJs in Chicago that are of my caliber or age have records from this guy's collection. He was a very big DJ. He used to DJ at a place called Center Stage, which was what Smart Bar and Metro were. It was a gay bar before it was. And he was a resident at this place called Medusa's. And they played everything from Nitzareb to Skinny Puppy to hearing Mr. Fingers, you know, and seeing Larry Hurd, you know, like it was a really interesting place. That neighborhood was even interesting. Like it was just, I was blown away. You, I would take the bus from the south side of Chicago to downtown and I would walk from downtown to the nor north side and you would literally, every few blocks would be different from an affluent neighborhood like Lincoln Park where the zoo was where it was more upper class white to getting closer to the north side where Gramophone is where there were records, it was called Record Store alley because there was a record store like every two blocks there was at least seven or eight of them around there and you would see everything from you know there'd be a tranny bar where the latina trannies hung out and the latino gangbangers who got into trannies would hang out and they would play house music or the or the the black transsexual hookers would be on broadway which is not too far and then there'd be a punk rock bar and if you went even closer to belmont there would be you'd see the skinheads and it just like it was i guess you'd say in a very artistic neighborhood you just saw so much and that really being around that and meeting some of those people as a as a young person really propelled me into wanting to just be, be in the scene and to dj but that was many many years ago and nobody cared who i was at all <laughs> during those periods at all i was just another guy who went out and danced all the time and played records well, you were initially a dancer before you kind of got into the, the DJing side of things. I liked to dance. I wouldn't say I was a dancer. 
but I, I did, you know, it was about the music and dancing and, and being in the, in that. And I bought records because that music was not something that you bought. There were no albums for house music. I mean, there are some artists that did have albums, but for the most part, you bought singles, you bought 12 inches. And so I would buy and listen to them at home. And it's not cheap either to DJ with records. You have to buy turntables and a mixer. And, you know, so for many years, it was just me making my own cassette tapes of my favorite songs, just recording the record playing and then putting the next one on until I could actually afford to buy two turntables and then practice in my living room playing around, which was boring and tedious and not fun at all. But once you get it, it's a lot of fun for sure. What records were you buying initially? You, you mentioned that like... Um, oh, everything. Nitzereb and the more industrial... Everything, dance music. everything from, you know, bad 80s pop, like, you know, Culture Club to buying house music, you know, which is whichever. It didn't matter. Disco a little bit. I guess uh, the one thing that is really great about the modern age in the internet is that I don't know what the actual term is, but, you know, like if you go onto a website and you buy something or if you go to Discogs and it'll say people who bought this bought this or like this. Those kind of recommendations. Recommending you and linking you to things and finding things that you might not find. And back in the day, record stores were notorious for, you know, the record store attitude of, you know, don't bother me, do, you know, whatever you get what you need, kid, and get out of here. And you didn't have places to listen to music either. And so you would go to places, and if you didn't have someone that could guide you, you wouldn't. it was hard to find out what those classics were. You couldn't, just by looking at it, you didn't know. And if you're a teenager with no hardly any money, you're not just going to buy things to buy them. you know. So that's very interesting. So I did buy stuff, but I didn't buy as much disco and some things that as a young white teenager really wouldn't know what it was you know and you you started off mixing videos at first is that right yeah one of my first gigs was as a vj a video jockey and back then they had uh, vhs tapes with jog shuttles so it was a little wheel with a pause button and you would pause the video and you could frame by frame go through the video to where whatever space you wanted to be at and release. I figured out a way that, you know, if you released at this amount of time frame before this started, you would hit the beat and you would be able to do these blends with the videos. And back then they were, there were 12 inches. So there was a company like rock America was the name of the one video company. And they would always uh, put 12 inch versions of songs out. So you could have dance songs. And as long as the beats matched, you'd have a time frame of at least, you know, the, you know, 15 seconds or 20 seconds to be able to blend the music together. And that was at a, a gay bar called Christopher street. Um, that I was doing that in a, on a South Side a place called In Exile, which one of the the DJs who was at Medusa's that was became one of my best friends, Terry Bristol, got me the the gigs. Then at Berlin, I was a VJ, and we used to make our own videos for songs. Like when a twelve inch of a song, like you know, like a 
one of the guys who was a resident there um, made all the videos for a band called uh, Thrill Kill Cult, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult, which was an alternative dance band. They were connected with Die Warsaw. And he actually made videos for them that we had a video editing room in the basement. And so we would either take, a, like if it was a 12-inch of Madonna, we would do our own video remix of it, splicing and redoing it. Or we would make our own videos. And then from as music kind of got shitty <laughs> in that period, there was dance music kind of got to a point where they weren't putting videos out for the music that was good. And we just got tired of making all of our own videos that we started to gravitate towards mixing in more records. And that's when I started playing more vinyl and playing more house music and not as eclectic at that point. So was there like a VJ scene at this time or were you guys... Oh, video bars were huge on the north side, yeah. There was probably a video bar every two blocks. There was some bar that played videos. I wouldn't say video jockeying was huge. Um, That was kind of more of a thing that I did and and at Berlin we did. There are a couple other places too, but not so much. But videos were huge. This is the 80s. So the sort of halcyon days of MTV, there's... Yes, exactly, so... And you mentioned it was when the videos started to suck a bit or they weren't making videos yeah. for good records that you got yeah. into into vinyl and playing vinyl more regularly. Yeah. Tell me about that club Berlin and, and how things progressed there. Berlin was a very unique place. It was right in its smack dab in the middle of the north side. And the music box was there over there. Medusa's smart bar wasn't too far away. There was just bars and clubs all over, um, rock venues. And like I was saying, the neighborhood was so eclectic and it was one of the the few bars that were actually open till 4 a.m. So at, later at night, the crowd, the mixture was just crazy. You'd have everything, it was everything under the sun there. And playing house music and it was because it was gay, it, it was a really interesting place. There, a lot of people these days strive for the uniqueness and the the collection of people that used to go there. Like it, it was crazy. Boom Boom Room was one of the few other places, and it was a gay owned place. It was owned by a gay man and a straight woman, actually. <clears throat> but it was you know known to be a gay bar where that was very pan sexual. Everyone, cro- even cross dressers. We used to have. Cross-dressers would come there all the time. And I don't mean transsexuals. I mean straight men who like to dress. There this was, is the boom, boom room. In, no, this is at Berlin. At Berlin, yeah. And two were never forget. One was a 60-something-year-old German man who liked to wear women's lingerie and had the largest penis I'd ever seen. And he would get up on the stage. There, were, there was a, like a performance stage in front of the DJ booth. And he would get up there. He would come in dressed in a suit, go into the women's bathroom, change into the lingerie and come out and just let it go. And we call them Elvis. He was crazy. And there was another one called the librarian who was a straight man who would come in and he would go into the bathroom and he would change. And he would wear pleated skirts with a wig that was kind of long and very like, you know, like ratted and sprayed like an old woman. And he'd wear like the little flower blouses with the ruffled tops on it. And, you know, they just wanted to dress as women and be in the scene. It was really interesting to see the different types of people that would come in there. 
What do you think it was about Berlin and the parties that you, you know you you were putting on there that actually drew such a like a wonderful, amazing crowd? It was the freedom to be who you wanted to be, and it was a unique, different place, and it was musically unique too. We played house music and alternative dance, um, and you know, being the fact that we also made our own videos because there was a visual artistic aspect to it also besides the clientele and that brought a lot of people to want to go there and that's one thing that I I really miss that and I I also they used to decorate they used to do these theme nights Dion Labriola was the guy who in charge of he was like the head DJ and he was amazing he used to decorate the club and it would have a theme for the whole month sometimes it would go longer and I remember one, he, it was game board obsession. And he did these larger than life game boards. So like uh, mouse trap and in operation, he, they were like 10 feet by 12 feet hanging from the ceiling with the nose would light up on the guy. And he'd have it where the, the mouse trap with the ball and just people wanted to, there was such creativeness and being around that, whether it was the, person who was dancing on the dance floor or the decorations or the music, it, it was a really interesting place to be. And one of the things I miss about it that I just wanted to say is that the DJ booth was in the middle of the room, but it was closed. You only saw through a window. And that made the focus of what was going on in the room about the music and the people the characters and the people as opposed to everyone going to stare at a DJ, which I still don't get. Don't don't get it. It's beyond me of why you want to stare at somebody who's just more or less, you know, creating and doing something. And some people are interesting to watch and see. But for the most part, most people are pretty boring to look at when they're DJing. You know. And uh, so the, the focus is very much on the music and on the atmosphere and on the crowd and the... Yeah, it was about it was a place for you to be free, whether you wanted to dance or you wanted to be around a place to hear that different music or you like or you were the cross dresser and you were comfortable and you were safe. And back in those days, because things were so prejudiced and segregated, you needed to find places like that to be able to be who you really wanted to be or around like that. And mu music and those clubs were those outlets for that, for people to do that. Most clubs in those days, especially gay ones, didn't have windows. There were no windows. Everything was blacked out. You had one small window on a door so that the security could see who was there, you know, but you either had people, you know, breaking the windows or you didn't want them to know that that bar was there because, the, you know, fag bashing, gays getting beat up, you know, there there still was that. Uh, I had gotten jumped and beat up in that neighborhood. Even as eclectic and as artistic as it is, it's still, you know, America, Chicago, 1984, you know, and being gay was nowhere near being accepted at that point. And so places like that had to have no windows. So it, that made it even more alluring to some people that it was like, wow, what is this place with all these people going in and you can't see what's going on and you just hear music and it was interesting. How long did you actually play at Berlin for? <laughs> I was at Berlin for 10 years. I was there from 19, uh, 1990 
93, 93 through to 2001, 2002, like that era. So it wasn't long after you started playing at Berlin that you, you got the job at Gramophone, is that right? Yes, Gramophone. I started in 1993, part-time. My good friend of mine, Ramit Kreitner, she was a, a manager there, and we were we became good friends, and we just liked each other a lot. And she talked to the owner, Joe, into getting me a part-time position there. And at that time, I was uh, a supervisor uh, in the music department at Best Buy in Chicago. And that was an interesting, sad transition because we used to buy music. Best Buys, when they first opened each store, could curate their music department the way they wanted. And we used to buy our own music. We'd buy Japanese imports, German imports, mostly CDs, but anything we wanted. And as the company grew and as the company went on, they made it to where it became only buying domestic major labels from a hub. And there was no, you know, you didn't have a choice. It was like, this is what you're getting. And when that was happening at that time, I was like, I want to get out of this. I don't want to be here anymore. And that's then I went full time at Gramophone. It was probably in 94, 95 ish. And what were your initial duties when you started at Gramophone? Well, when he hired me, after when I became full-time, Joe knew what I was doing at Best Buy. And I was also the shipping and receiving of the, of the product. So I told Joe that I could help them with doing the shipping and receiving at the store. And, but they, he laughingly said yes to it, but more or less I was just another employee who thought that he was doing something. It was an interesting place to work. It was like working with a bunch of your brothers and sisters. You wanted to kill each other half the time, yet and you all liked each other, and nobody wanted to listen to anyone because <laughs> there was no tier of who's in charge besides the owners, really. So I tried to get them to do things, <laughs> and they would be like, fuck you, I'm not doing that. <laughs> and what kind of records were stocked in Gramophone at that point? Gramophone is very interesting because Gramophone opened in 1969, and when Gramophone opened in Record Store Alley, it was like every other record store. They sold everything from books on tape to classical music and jazz. And in the 80s, like around 81, 82, when Andy Moy, this young guy, was brought in by Joe, the owner, they started to stock house music. So Gramophone, besides imports, etc., which imports, et cetera, was like one of the first first. And they were located r- right around the block from the warehouse. And they used to have a record pool also upstairs from imports, et cetera. So DJs would go there, and that was like specific to go to imports. I used to shop at imports. Derek Carter used to work at imports, et cetera. And he left after having some issues and went to Gramophone. At that point, uh, Josh Warner was the buyer of Techno, which he was the buyer before there was Techno. He actually bought like The Cure and stuff like that at Gramophone. And little by little, with these people coming in, Ralphie Rosario worked there, Sneak, they got rid of all non-electronic music. It was, or, you know, if it, disco and funk, but everything was all electronic. They sold no rock music at all. And now we sell rock music again. Very little, but we actually do because you kind of have to to survive. 
you mentioned some of the staff that had worked at Gramophone, Ralphie Rosario, DJ Sneak, Derek yeah. Carter. What did you notice or learn from the, the way those those people sort of went about working in a record shop? They were jerks. <laughs> no, uh, at that time, you know, it was really interesting to, to be around other people that were creating and just the environment was amazing and just the people that would come in too you would meet so many other artists that these people were working with that would come and shop you know frankie would come in and there was a point after being accepted by my fellow you know employees you know that i had gotten a little more exposure there and i would make a box of records for frankie when he would come in and buy you know masters at work the guys would come in francois k like it would be amazing to see the people that were coming and shopping at the store besides the people that work there it was a, a very creative and interesting place to be around but it, yet it was clicky at the same time yeah it's hard to think of a better uh, learning experience or schooling in in house music than working at gramophone in, yeah. in seeing those guys dj in the dj booth at the store i'm just you know no reason glenn underground boo williams pop in for no reason and start playing music and come they would come in and play all of their non-finished material and watch everybody drool the, all, we used to have like maybe seven listening stations back then in that place and pretty much everybody listening would look up and be like what is that and they would be like oh it's not out yet it's the new moon man and they'd be like when's it coming out uh when i finish it it's not done and it just it, they'd be like, well, you're you know you're an asshole for playing this now in front of us. But it was like their testing ground. They would come in, people would come in and play music there, that you would be hearing before it was even out yet. That it was like because all the DJs shopped there, they wanted to see the, the reactions of what was going on. I read in an interview you did a few years back. You you mentioned that um, some of the staff there had little tricks they would use, like you know only buying in four or five copies of a record. <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> I'm sure they won't like that very much, but <laughs> we'll just say that there there's a rumor that they would buy records. And back then there was it wasn't limited. Like now, if you don't pre-order it, you might not get it. You know, or if it's sold out, they don't repress. Back then. That was the, that was the staple. You, twelve inch vinyl was if you wanted to be a DJ, if you needed the music, that's how you got it. And there were record labels and companies they made money, so they pressed. So it wasn't like you weren't going to get it again. But for a couple months, they would make sure they only ordered so many, so somebody got it, and they were playing in the big clubs like Shelter and other places. And so if you've got the market on it that you're playing these hot tracks you know it, you're going to get the work and you're going to be one of the people on top and you know, th that's one of the things when I took over that it was like I, I want to make sure that it, I remember being the nobody and wanting to have that music and would you know that I wanted to make sure that anyone who comes in the store can get the best music and not you know have to re rely on something, a, a trick like that. They didn't all do that and it wasn't f forever, you know, but, but also working at that store, we got amazing music because it, bringing that up, used to get promos, you know, double pack imports. Like uh, I brought one with me to play. I don't know if I'll play it tonight, but I'm going to play it in Berlin is this double pack of bizarre ink. You took my love and the, the regular double pack and the domestic 
had mixes, but they didn't have this one mix called the techno mix. And it's really good. And like stuff like that, working at the record store, you know, they were given out sparingly. You only each store in the country or the world, you know, there was only a hundred pressed and they gave them so many people to get that was, um, you know, that was a big deal to be getting this music that most people didn't get. And were the staff at the time, was there like a clamor for those promos when they came through? Oh, yes. <laughs> Lots of fighting was going on when that stuff would come through. But obviously, you know, the buyers got it. But because Gramophone was so big, we were given a lot of bonuses. Let's put it that way. I mean, we used to spend a lot of money, lots of money, uh, deliveries twice a week of pallets of records coming in and out. You know, we remember a classic release, we would sell 500 to 600 copies in a couple weeks. Like we would literally be ordering them. They would come on Tuesday or Wednesday. People would line up at the door. We would carry them to the door and they would just be grabbing them out of your hands. And just it, by then we were already reordering that night to have them send more for the weekend because we knew if they all flew out on a weekday and you sold a hundred copies of a record in one day, you know, in one evening, you better order another hundred, 150 for the weekend. It was a pretty interesting time. And one of the things, the tricks was too at gramophone is those people were pigs. Those, you know, they all want, they were digging and looking and throwing records around. And the trick was when you went to gramophone, you didn't look at the wall, you went to the floor and where all the listening stations and record go back, there'd be stacks because those guys would listen to what they want and then they'd just put the stacks on the floor for it to be put away at the end of the evening. And so as a customer, you would come in, you'd go look through the floor and that's where you would find the hot records because they never made it to the wall really. They just went to the floor of whoever didn't want them. And you took on um, some buying duties when Keith Ware left. Yes. So tell me about how your... You don't want to know about that. <laughs> I, I, was, I was the club music buyer. And so what did that it was, mean? It was, it, was, it was something for me to do there. <laughs> it was, that, that pertained to more of the familiar club music, you know, like the 49ers in the 90s or some of the, you know, like Peter Rohhofer and the Club 69 stuff when he was, you know, more... It, become domestically released with a lot of things that were more club-oriented. And Keith was the buyer of that, and it was definitely the more high-energy gay music that he used to buy, but that really wasn't me. But I still, that's what I bought. And I'd sneak in things for myself, too. You know, because everything as a buyer is by what the buyer's taste is. At that, at that time, it was anyways. It, there was no worry about sales and, oh, if you don't order this, we won't make any money. It was like, whatever you buy, you have good taste as a buyer, you buy it. And there's some things the buyer would skip, and I would say, it's got a version by so-and-so on this, so I'm buying it. And even though that's not why I wanted to buy it, but because it, had the, it was a good song, I thought. So, yeah. How did things progress from that point to the stage where you're the owner of Gramophone? Just the, the owners felt it, it was time in the, you know, the early two. The, when we moved Gramophone after 2001, the industry was really, the digital age was really booming and coming over for dance music. And the CD industry was still fairly strong, but not huge. Um, the owner did not want to become only a CD store. 
like Imports Etc. had done and then wound up closing because he swore to Joe that the industry vinyl was going to be dead and CDs were going to be the way to go. And he opened up, he closed Imports Etc. and reopened only as a CD store. And it closed within, I think I want to say about a year and a half, two years it was closed. It's funny that vinyl is still around now and CDs, we sell hardly any CDs at the store. We're actually in the process of getting rid of half of our bins at the store of the CDs. They're just young people download, stream, download. You don't buy CDs anymore, really. But the owners felt that I was in the best position financially, that I was stable, (laughs) mentally stable. Record stores tend to have unstable people working at them. (laughs) So he felt, um, both of them, the partners, Joe and Carl, felt that uh, I would be best to to take over the store uh, on an installment basis. (laughs) It's been quite a journey. So when, what year is it when you took over? Uh, Took over uh, 10 years ago. Going on nine, not ten. It would be nine years. What kind of changes did you make when you started running the place? Uh, very little. Any of the changes that have happened, uh, you know, the buying is the one thing that, you know. When I took over also, it kind of was a transitional period for the store. The, you know, the, the finances were gone with the music industry feeling, especially in America with the economy falling out after 9-11 and then the, the digital age, you know, the, all those people who work there were now needing to find somewhere else to go. The owners, unfortunately, didn't invest as much um, of the profits they were making in the store itself, which would have been probably a, a better thing to do, especially I, Gramophone probably could be a Juno if they had invested, but um, but they cared about their employees, and we had good health insurance, and we they took care of us. With the, everything going south, going bad, we couldn't afford to do insurance anymore. We couldn't afford to give raises. You know, we're lucky where the, where the store is open. So those people had to move on. So I took over a lot of the buying that came into the store, and uh, Oscar, who was a great guy, great man, um, was still one of the few people who was around, but and Andy, but they needed to get real jobs with insurance and pay and benefits, and so that's one thing that changed that you know kind of had to change that not necessarily I wanted to change, and then the, what I was saying about gramophone being full circle, that we now sell jazz rock, you know things that we had never stocked before because that's what the you know, record stores have always sold music that they might not think is good music because making the money from that music is what allows you to buy the music that you think is good and that you want to sell to people. And so this age, when especially I think in the last few years, there's been a change in the electronic scene. More people are pressing vinyl and vinyl is available. But for a while there, there was a little bit of a pocket where... Most electronic DJs went the d- digital route, and most people making music weren't pressing it. And the young people that are, were purchasing and buying music were buying more indie and, ele- and rock music and classic jazz, stuff like that. So we had to go to that to keep people coming into the store a little bit. I mean, not completely, but 
something to help keep keep an income coming in. And what's it like running a record store in 2015? <laughs> it's tough. <laughs> it's not. It's not easy. That's for sure. But um, the store itself, I would, I'd have to say one of the things at the store too, you know, that me and my partner, I do own it with my partner, Jason, that we don't take a paycheck from the store. The money that we make, the store pays the bills. My money comes from DJing. The money that I'm reinvesting in, in whatever we make is to pay the bills, debts, and to have young people work at the store. So there's a new generation of young, crazy guys who work at the store now who are doing things like Garrett David, who is one of the residents at Queen at Smart Bar with me, um, is my house buyer, Adam, who is actually part of the Bell Boys with Garrett, is the techno buyer. And, you know, they're making music, they're DJs, they're in the scene. Jacob Meehan, who has these parties called Mister, who's he's even traveling the world and playing now. Like, it's important to have young people working at the store who bring other young people in and they create an environment that you want to see in the store that reminds me of the old days. And it, it's been that's a, a good thing that's happened and changed for sure. You guys also started or sort of, I guess, relaunched the gramophone label recently. And it was kind of a stated aim of the label to, to sort of champion this like next generation. How, how healthy is that generation looking to you? Well, the generation is healthy. Financially, not so healthy. It's, it's kind of tough finding the balance of buying music for the store and collections from people and also, you know, money to be scrounged up to press a record. You know, unfortunately, I don't have a lot of backers and money behind me to do it so we have plenty of people sending me music that's actually really great <laughs> but at the and now even with the backup of the industry there's been a, a, a resurgence in vinyl again that the pressing plants are all backed up so even if we wanted to press a record we'd have to wait almost a year to get it out because it's taking so long to do it it seems like it's causing a, a fairly major bottleneck in the whole thing at the moment in terms of the Lots of independent labels wanting to press records, but they're just being a massive delay. There are many delay. bad things with this beautiful resurgence. The digital age that people think they can master their own music, which doesn't always translate properly on vinyl if you don't have someone who knows how to do it. The people that are doing it are completely backed up. They're the few that are st stayed in the industry. And the pressing of the records is being done so quickly sometimes the quality has become lacking. Warped records, whole batches warped because they're not putting plates in between them because they're trying to press as many as possible and get them out. You know, it just, it, there's a lot of things that are great with the resurgence, but a lot of things that have become really bad that used to be uh, important parts back in the day. It's one of the things with the, you know, the vinyl and the industry, the, the whole argument between the quality of digital versus the quality of vinyl. And I think that vinyl can match and, and compete in a digital market. But when you have bad product, it's making it harder for people who are champions of the vinyl industry to do anything because how can you prove that when you're given inferior product to try to do it with? I can't play a warped record that skips into a great set 
<laughs> if the digital guy won't have a problem with his record skipping because the records are warped or there's a problem with them, you know, or the quality of the sound, you know, oh yeah, that sounds like an ancient old record. It's, a, it's you know, you can hardly hear anything. You know, the, the quality of it is not there. And I'd rather play digital because it's fuller and louder. And, you know, and so you can't compete when you have something that's done badly, you know. It's like going to a sword fight and you have one person has the sword and you have a dagger <laughs> or you have a, a noodle <laughs> and you're it's not going to be able to do it yeah it does feel like the states are crying out for just another pressing plant or two yeah i heard that the tracks one is still in chicago somewhere in a warehouse but nobody has stepped up to buy it or take you know and it's that's quite an investment too you know it's not uh, cheap to purchase move <laughs> such a piece of industry like that and and do it so i'm sure there are people that are that just don't want to go there there's not you know vinyl is still around but it's never going to be what it was and most people who are investing money in businesses want a business that is emerging and growing not one that is stable <laughs> necessarily and in terms of your own DJing, tell me, uh, taking things back a bit, tell me about Boom Boom Room and how that started. Mm. I used to DJ a lot, lots of opening slots in places in the city and, you know, a lot of my friends and especially from Gramophone being connected with a lot of people. Gramophone was uh, is definitely a great connection, not just for people buying music, but for DJs and meeting people. And I, I had some parties that I used to play in Berlin was, I mean, Berlin used to be packed with a line down the street, but it was a very, it was, it was mostly gay. Boom Boom Room, even though it was a gay industry house night, was a, a different, a slightly different point of view. Um, it was mi it more mixed, and it was mixed across the board. When Berlin was a little more white and Latino, and so just being around... In playing in, from the store, and, and actually Lego, who used to come in and buy music, was still a resident for Boom Boom Room. Um, they had been closed down, and for some issue, they, the, the, that club always had problems with something happening. It closed and shut down, I think, four times in its lifetime. Red Dog to Green Dolphin to where it ended recently, actually closed again for another shooting. Lego continued to do the party at a place that was actually a fairly famous place in the city called Slicks. Slicks was this small little bar not too far from Cabrini Green in this dead-end street in a factory area, a little box, and people, Derek played there, Derek Carter, Heather, all of the names of the, that 90s generation of DJs played there, and they would go there. And Lego decided he was going to continue Boom Boom Room and do it there on his own. And he asked me to open for him. And we started doing that party for maybe just, just a few months, maybe six months. It wasn't very busy. There were, there were people that came. And I was happy just to open. I enjoyed playing music and was happy to open for him. He was pretty big becoming very big at that time with his releases, his remixes of Ralphie on Underground Construction, the um, DJ Gregory's label. He did uh, a couple songs on the Africanism label. And this gentleman, Arman, Arman Assad, was, uh, he actually owned, managed a bar that was not too far from Red Dog, where the original Boom Boom Room was. He has 
had gotten out of owning and managing to promoting and hosting. And somehow he connected with Lego and they reconnected with the owners of Red Dog who owned this jazz club called Green Dolphin. And they decided they were going to do, try and do Boom Boom Room again. And they did. And for about a year or so, it wasn't very busy. And all within a couple of years, we were doing almost a thousand people or more on Monday nights, um, lined up down the street to get in. It was pretty crazy. It was a lot. It was a lot of fun. A great, beautiful space, beautiful place. And how did you go about developing your own DJ style? You know, playing those warm up sets. I don't think I really thought about it. Um, DJing, though, I I have to say that my DJing style is based upon stealing it from everyone else. I, I watched many people DJ and. I've learned from my own practicing and what I like, but from watching them and I really enjoyed picking at, you know, like picking their heads and, and, and seeing why they played and how they played from, you know, playing a certain, you know, different music, you play different ways. You know, when you play hip hop, they're short mixes. It's about being aggressive and you go fast. Somebody like that, like, Bad Boy Bill or like I used to see Ralphie play and it would be his mixes were always super tight and not really long, but they were all tight and the music was perfect together. And so watching that, learning like if you're going to play vocals and you're going to play this kind of music, you make those mixes tight and short. Or seeing somebody like Derek Carter play back in the 90s where he would do three turntables and he would play a Paula Abdul a cappella over a house track and it was awesome. And you were like, what the hell is this? Like, what version, this crappy song? Like, be like, you made this sound so amazing. And he would do that with so many things, not just pop music, but with even classics of seeing how to play like that. If you want to do a style of music like this that's more tracky and you want to, you know, just interesting to see that. And I've kind of learned from, you know, not just Chicago guys, but anybody and you make it your own. You borrow it and make it your own. And how much attention do you pay to the to the crowd in terms of reading a room? Always. How do you how do you go about that? I, I say when you DJ, at least for me, DJing, I never play. I never, ever, 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 ever play the same set. I've never played in my whole life. I don't think I've ever played the same set of music. But you have your bones. And you always that are those bones are who you are, and those bones are where you would like to take the night, and then everything else is around that. And so, when I bring music, I have music that I bring that these specific songs are the journey that I want to go on, and this is my point of view. But I'm bringing this other music too because I may maybe too drunk and want to do something else or I see the crowd isn't going where I want to go and this is where I'm going to go. And as a DJ of what I've learned, I grew up as a DJ and matured as a club DJ as opposed to people like Derek or other people who were playing parties and could play freely what they wanted. I had to bend and watch and play that song at the beginning of the night because that's what was going to get the room going. And as they got drunk, you could play whatever you wanted later, but you, you know, had a basis of how you had to play. And obviously you've got a close connection with the smart bar. When did you first start playing there? I've been playing there for a long time. 
I can't remember actually when I started. I mean, but usually that was like when Brad Owen and James Amato, who were the music talent buyer, music directors at that time, started bringing more people to come in and do guest opening spots as opposed to residents. Like Joe Smooth used to be a resident at Smart Bar back in the day. Like you didn't have, you didn't do guest spots. You didn't do openings normally in my experiences of growing up as a DJ, you found a club or a club found you and that's where you played. But Smart Bar was one of those first that started doing that. And uh, I played for many years, just kind of like doing a guest spot here and there and playing and Kid Color is what he went by, Kyle, Kyle Woods. He worked for Smart Bar, young guy that was brought in by them. And he had a night called Dollar Disco and me and Garrett David, were the residents for the night there. And that's kind of where the residency started from. It was Kyle's night though. And Kyle, when he left Smart Bar working there to go on to other musical adventures, decided to stop doing that night also. And Nate Sider, who was the music director at that time, and I were friends and I told him of the problems with, at that time, Boom Boom Room had closed down from another shooting that had happened, and we had a falling out, and me and Bird Bardot wanted to do something, who was a host. Bird Bird is a famous nightlife host character in Chicago, has been around a long, long time. And we wanted to do a night that was like Boom Boom Room and take it somewhere else and for a new generation of kids and get away from the negativity of what was happening at that club and those people. And we were talking and it was like, you know, when we were kids, we didn't want to hear what our parents told us of like, oh, you should go here or you should do this because this is what's what's cool. We wanted our own thing. So we wanted to create a night that would be in the spirit of Boom Boom Room, but something that was now, that was for now. And we wanted to do a name that was in your face of, you know, this is a gay-oriented night. And we wanted a name, and Bird came up with the name that was kind of, it's, it's, it's one of those words where it's kind of a negative, but it's not a negative word. So most gay people will call, call each other queen as in it could be in a, in, a, in a friendly way or it could also be in a, in a derogatory way, a, a negative way to say, you know, what a queen Kind of taking ownership of that, though. And yeah, and it's funny because most of all the resident DJs who are, are residents are not queens, <laughs> and, or they're straight. So it's kind of funny at the same time, too. And, and it's about the hosts, too, because that is one thing with Boom Boom Room that we wanted to bring to Smart Bar and to Queen in our night that we do, which is the antithesis of the DJ. I know it's easy to say that when your residents are Frankie Knuckles and Shay Damier was and, and, you know, Derek Carter is, it's easy to say we don't want to focus on the resident as the DJ, but that was what the old school mentality like with Berlin and what Boom Boom Room was, was it's, it's about, it's about the queen that is voguing on the floor. That is the customer that is, you know, of the club that is just drunk and wants to have a great time and, and wants to, to, to be himself and wreck it, you know, to get a little, you know, his five minutes of fame and not about the DJ. And it's about the, the club, the kids who like to dress up and not just transsexually speaking as in drag, but the, that are artistic like Jojo, who's one of our hosts and Sally, 
who used to be, they are actually famous in the city because they're just club kids. Like they just, they dress up artistically. It's not about feminine, masculine, it's about art. And we want to incorporate all that in the night. And that's what the queen was about, was just about the people, not just about the DJs and the club itself. And that started in, in 2012. And did you yes. find that the, the, the crowd got that, that, that they understood that ethos? Oh, totally. Totally did. Yeah, uh, I think it was something that young people heard of used to be more like that and want, want to, to see that and be around it and be in it. So me and Nate had talked and we said we didn't, I didn't want to go back to Boom Boom Room. I didn't want to be a part of what was happening negatively there. There are many things that we won't even get into. So we decided to, and they wanted to move Boom Boom Room from a Monday to a Sunday. And I was DJing Sundays at Smart Bar. And I, we decided we're just going to take that spirit and call it something else and bring it to Smart Bar. And um, put a lot of work and effort into it. And luckily, I think I'm a nice guy. And Frankie said, since I like you and I I'm, have history and love Joe, the owner of Smart Bar, I want to come and play and be a part of what you're doing. And Derek, who's been generous and wonderful, and he's a great Derek is a great man, and he's a part of our night too. And just th that camaraderie, friendship, hard work has helped to to create. And, and everybody's on the same vision. We all want to see the same thing, which is uh, a place to have fun, hear great music, and kind of push boundaries sometimes. Tell me what it was like when, when Frankie did come on board as a resident. Oh, it was insane. <laughs> I mean... Like I was saying, saying earlier, things some things are just natural. And, it, you know, Frankie has always been one of those people, had been one of those people that everyone loved. And they loved him because he never put himself into one specific group. He never wanted to be around, like he, he was drama-free, it was always that way, and our mentality, my mentality is the same way, is away from the attitude, away from the drama, and do things to your utmost ability to be as, to do your best no matter what you do in life. And at Frankie and them, I think they saw that, and they want to do what they do, and they want to do it around people who are drama-free and try to do things to the best of their ability instead of working with that one promoter who never pays you or, you know, that club that has always got a problem that that kind of brought us all together. And, the, and like I said, the, the laid back attitude, it's a Sunday night. As much as we are all musical snobs and we all are connoisseurs and want the, the coolest or weirdest music, it's also what Queen is about and at Smart Bar on Sundays is we want to hear the best music and laugh and get drunk and get laid and have fun, you know, that it's, it's not just about, you know, how amazing the music is and how perfect the blends are. It's, a, it's about a party and a place for you to feel welcome and, and, and have a great time and be yourself, whether you're sober or high or drunk or whatever it is. It feels like the the whole like the Sunday party 
thing in certain parts of the world has, has really dropped off unless you're talking like sort of kicking on after parties, oh, but yes. actually have a, a proper Sunday night thing. Um, Anything beyond Thursday, Friday or Saturday, is, <laughs> it doesn't seem to happen anymore. Yeah. So does that, is that what kind of sets Queen apart a bit in, in terms of what's going on around the city? Oh, definitely. I mean, but that's also another old school mentality in my mind, because in Chicago, at least, it used to be if you wanted to go out on a Monday, you went to Boom Boom Room. If you wanted to go out on a Wednesday, you went to Shelter. If you wanted to go out on a Friday, you went to Crowbar. Or you went to, you know, one of the, it's funny, now in my brain, the wheels are moving. And one of the other parties that is kind of an inspiration is for Queen was there used to be a huge gay night on Sunday at a place called Cairo in Chicago. And it was really cool club. It was in the basement. It used to be a meatpacking building. And so they had all these weird side brick rooms that they made into these VIP rooms that used to be where they stored the meats. And the dance floor was in the center and the DJ booth was also off on the side. But um, I saw a Delight perform there. But Terry Bristol um, used to be a resident there. And she took it to Crowbar and it was just, the, the night was called Glee. And they called it Glee Club. And it was called Gays, Lesbians, Everyone's Equal. It was the what that an acronym for, was for. But that was the inspiration that it was on a night. And it was also it's geared towards industry, which were the people that were bartenders, DJs, people that worked. That normally you were working DJing Friday, Saturday, or during you know Thursday or Wednesday when our nights people usually go out more. Sundays and Mondays where the nights, the hairdressers are all off on Monday, you know, the deliveries of the liquor don't come on Monday. They are, you know, like it just, it was all that that kind of brought to do a night like that on a Sunday. Yeah, because it is kind of a weird night to be doing that. But it, it, yeah, it separates it. But you don't see that very much anywhere at all anymore to see nights not on a Thursday, Friday or Saturday somewhere. It feels like at the moment there's a really, really strong circuit of underground gay parties in the States. Yes. Do you feel that you're part of that network? And it- That's another interesting thing in the modern era. I mean, you know, back then it, you heard about parties and, you know, everything was, you know, segregated by miles, by distance. You, you know, most people couldn't afford to fly to New York if you didn't live in New Jersey and couldn't take the train there or if, you know, you didn't live in Indiana, you know, even people in Detroit had their own thing. If you were in Chicago, you didn't go there that often, once in a while. So everything, everyone had their own thing, which was interesting because that's part of what made things unique too because, you know, house music was in Chicago because it happened in Chicago and you were in Berlin, you did couldn't really hear about it. You know, the radio, you couldn't get the radio of Chicago College Radio in Berlin to know what was happening. But these days, because everything is so connected, it's, it's amazing to see how these communities, I mean, even now with me being here in England, that, you know, would you have even known who about me or want me to have come here if this were 20 years ago because of the way things have changed, you know, so now there are parties where, you know, I got asked to go and play one of the first 
out-of-town regular things I got was go bang a disco party. They played for us at Smart Bar once, and they asked me to come and play in San Francisco. And they flow me out every year for three, three years, four years, three years, I think, that to go play out there. And it would have never happened if it weren't for this modern age and digital of being online and being able to see what people are doing here that's similar to what you're doing. And it's a weird global community that's, that's happening these days. It's interesting. This is your first time in the UK? Yes. I, I guess that's also something that you, you might have just been stayed like a, a sort of local favorite if it wasn't for the, the modern age of people being able yeah. to listen to your mixes. Because I don't have, because yeah, I don't have any music out although i do now finally a record that came out a couple weeks ago or a remix for shade amir on balance so i now have officially have a record but before that yeah i was just a local dj who you know owns a record store who recommends music to people that come through and obviously they like the music i give them so you know that that yeah kind of that was the way it was and I guess um, you're also going to be playing at Panorama Bar soon. That'll be your second time yeah, there. Second and time. I, in Oslo too. And well, in terms of the Panorama Bar thing, like you know, I've read you know people like Stephanie and Pesuma are big sort of fans of Gramophone. They'll come in there. Yeah. And so has that? I guess you've sort of fostered relationships that way. Yeah, that that too definitely. You know, Gramophone is is made the connections too of the store's notoriety and people that are famous DJs and artists that come through that I've met over the years of being there. And then I guess being able to prove myself when, if they've heard me play, obviously Steffi's played with me at Smart Bar. Everything is a connection. If Steffi didn't play at Smart Bar and didn't hear me play at Smart Bar, she couldn't have recommended that I come and play there. If she didn't know that I had good taste from her buying records at Gramophone and recommending, she wouldn't, you know what I mean? So it, it all, all is relevant, I guess. But yeah, there's a lot of things that have helped me along the way, and generous people that have been very kind. So, well, you, you mentioned that you've got a remix that's just been released. Are you planning to, on like hitting the studio, putting out more records? No, <laughs> it would be nice. I like people, and I strive myself to be drama free and do the best that I can at whatever I do, and. It's not easy to own a record store and to have a night at a club and run a night and do book that night and take care of the bookings and take care of the ads, travel and DJ, and then have time to be in a studio and work. Or, you know, it's, it, it's, I would like to. We'll see where, what that happens. And the remix that I did is definitely 70%, 80% on Garrett. You know, I was the guide. I was the conductor of the orchestra. <laughs> so he's he's the guy who played the instruments, but I conducted kind of what we wanted to do together. And it came out wonderfully. It's good. It's not, I won't say it's going to change the world or anything, but it, it came out really nicely. How would you assess the state of Chicago's like music scene now from clubs and, and also like a record um, store in a point of view? There's a renaissance again in the city, that's for sure. There are a lot of people that are coming up of new producers, everything from Black Madonna, from Maria, who I work with. You know, th there's uh, this uh, gentleman, Ed, Ed Nine is what he goes by, is a guy who's been making some music mixed in with some of the old school people who finally are coming home again. 
coming home from not traveling as much and starting to make music to this modern age of seeing something that used to be more of a European phenomenon and even maybe in New York, not so much. I don't know. No, that's, that's giving way too much credit. No, a more of a European phenomena of older artists working with younger artists in making music together or guiding them, procuring them. Like you can see that in Detroit has been happening with, you know, everything from, you know, from Kyle Hall and what's his name? Jay uh, Daniel. Jay Daniel, Naomi Daniel's son, that, you know, these guys are connected with the older guys and they're helping to guide them along of, you know, maybe not necessarily making music together, but showing them the way of how to, you know, to bring them up and support them too, to support them, definitely. You know, you don't necessarily need to work, but support each other and procure that scene and the artists to come up. And Chicago has always been a segregated city. And, you know, and definitely I'm sure there's something that has to do with, you know, a lot of the, the older people that were making house music, especially that feel left out in the modern age of this making money off of it, that they really, anything they got, they held closely and didn't want to share it with anyone else because you had to fight with each other. There's just so many talented people at that time in Chicago. You fought for gigs, you fought for music deals, you fought for everything. So why would you want to share it with somebody else who may take what you have? And these days have changed. So you see that these people are working more. I mean, even working with people from other countries, especially, you know, so it's, it's good. It's, it's growing again and it's healthy for sure. Parties, lots of warehouse parties, loft parties. That's one trend that I see not just in Chicago, but everywhere is the unfortunate demise of a lot of nightclubbing that it's become boring. And people are starting to go to parties and throw their own parties there's not as many amazing clubs as there used to be for a while because I think, you know, there's a change happening. And it's a good change, though, because usually those loft parties and warehouse parties are what spur the changes in the nightclubs to to change and, and recreate themselves and be creative again. And you mentioned the kind of old school mentality of of keeping that knowledge sort of secret or sacred. It feels like doing the opposite of that and being very inclusive is a big part of what drives you. And, and in terms of, you know, welcoming others in, in terms of showing that, you know, welcoming in a new generation of sharing that knowledge, of sharing your experiences. True. I guess I'm, I'm very open. Even when I talk, I probably say things I shouldn't say. I'm, I'm sure somebody's probably said that about me. <laughs> like to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, because to me, that's part of life is learning and, and, you know, adventure and, and, and discovery. And that's what you want to share with people. I want, I want to learn and I want to understand and experience things that people, and just to, to know how they do it. And it, it, I like to share that with people too, that want to know, well, why, why did you do this? How do you do this? You know, what are you thinking of doing? Like, I, I liked that interaction with people. I like to, to pick people's brains and, and see how it works and how, especially in the art world, and, and then I like to share whatever I can share with people if it can 
satisfy their curiosity or improve their life in some way, whichever it is. Ooh.